Today is uh, February the 7th, 2012. Am I loud enough? Okay. Because I can get louder. <laughs> okay, uh, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. <coughs> Excuse me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your mighty word that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us the warnings that we need, the encouragement that we need, and it is to our benefit that we pay attention. So we pray that you will help us to focus this evening so that we can rightly divide the word, for we pray it in Christ's name, amen. We're going to move on, if everybody is clear, on what you see on the board. Uh, you shall know them by, the, by their fruits. We went over Matthew seven thirteen through 24. We went over it in some detail about the narrow gate and the wide gate and about... <clears throat> Those who would analyze you by your behavior to determine if you are truly saved or not. Do we need to address anything before we press on? Do you all remember Matthew seven thirteen through, what do we go through, 23? you all remember that? Yeah, I know. We've, we've already done all this. Just before I press on, because we're fixing to shift gears a little bit. I want to make sure there's no questions over this. Okay. <laughs> I nearly made it. Is it a short question? What? Yeah, that's that's the question. I think the question was, does that that pertain to others than false teachers, to all unbelievers that stand at the great white throne? Yeah, they're all basically going to have only one recourse, and that is to stand on their good works. And even though on that day they will be saying, Lord, Lord, and for the first time accept him as their Lord, but it's too late. And the only thing that they do, they can do, is what is given in Matthew seven twenty-two. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And each unbeliever, every false teacher that is an unbeliever, will essentially go to that same, have that same pattern, which is trying to enunciate the good things that they think should allow them into heaven. And, of course, the response will be the same. Then Christ saying, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So that really accompanies very nicely Revelation what chapter? 20, right. Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 11, 12, and 13, right in there. That's where you have <coughs> the information on the great white throne. There are two judgments left, one for the believer, which is known as the judgment seat of Christ. The other is for unbelievers, the great white throne. The one for the great white throne is found in Revelation chapter 20, and really this complements what is said in Revelation chapter 20 because they are actually playing out what is prophesied in Revelation chapter 20 as far as the unbelievers standing before Christ as their judge rather than their Savior because they rejected the free gift of salvation and now they have to stand on their own good works. 
Yeah. In this context of this, they're talking about false teachers. And the lawlessness <coughs> is the, the preaching of false doctrine. Yeah, the, the, of course, that would be against the Mosaic law, but it, it, worse than it being lawlessness, it's, it demonstrates that they haven't accepted Christ, and that is presented here as lawlessness. No, no sins. No, no. That bothered me when I saw it the first time, and the more that I looked at it in context, it's referring to the teaching of false doctrines because all this is directed to false teachers. And what they were, uh, and what they were doing was against the Mosaic Law, was against God's law altogether, is to pervert His Word and teach false doctrine. Do you have something, Pete? We're going there right now. Well, it's, 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 on, it's not in Matthew, it's in John. That's where we're going next. We'll spend the rest of the night mainly covering this issue about uh, bearing fruit. Now, this was John. Uh, of course, Paul addressed the um, spiritual gifts, and he's, he wrote Galatians, which is where you have the fruit of the Spirit. So, you know, he, he did address the fruit. But we're going to look at uh, fruit bearing in a way that uh, we're fixing to shift gears, and that's one of the first things we're going to address. But yeah, well, yeah, it was a work system. It's all tied together. It's all linked together, and that is uh, the, of course, the present tense. Kept on teaching false doctrine, uh, primarily giving a false gospel. Yes. Anything else? Okay. We're getting now, we're going to cover perseverance now. We're still under the main heading of faith alone with regards to salvation. Faith alone and Christ alone. And we looked at, do you have to... Um, Acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Do you have to confess your sins? And we saw no, none of that is, has anything to do with it. Uh, do you have to walk the straight and narrow? No. Straight and narrow is referring to the gospel, and the only way is through Christ. So now we're, we're seeing that one, another thing that would eliminate the idea that you have to have something other than faith is the idea that you must persevere. And that's what we're starting to address here. <clears throat> there are many warnings and exhortations in the Bible to encourage believers to fight the good fight of faith. The good fight of faith. You could say that just as easily to fight the good fight of doctrine because the faith here is referring that body of knowledge that in which we have faith in, which is the Word of God. First of all, we have a warning because I said we have warnings and exhortations. Here is a warning. <clears throat> In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. <clears throat> excuse me. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love, the lust for money that is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's hard for me and maybe you as well to see how someone could take verses that seem as innocuous as this and get them wrong, but they do because it says uh, if you... Lust after money, as some do, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. There are those who would say that <coughs> these people lose their salvation. <coughs> Others would say 
they wandered away from the faith because they ne- were never really of the faith to begin with. They didn't have the right kind of faith. The fact that they got off course means that they were not persevering. And they would make persevering a requirement for salvation. That's the warning part. Now we have an exhortation. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 12. But flee from these things, you man of sin, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance. Isn't that interesting? We are to per- pursue perseverance and gentleness. Again, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life for which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So here again we have the fight the good fight of faith. That means to stand firm for doctrine. It means to be prepared to give anyone a reason for your confidence. doesn't matter when it takes place, where it takes place, or who's asking you. We are to be prepared to give them an answer. Taking hold of eternal life. Remember we said that eternal life has more than one meaning. Most of the time people think in terms of eternal life, which is how it is used in John chapter 3, verse 36, he who, has, who believes on the Son has eternal life. And that is talking about the kind of life that only God can give, that cannot be lost, cannot be uh, taken away, and it all comes from faith. That's the normal way of thinking of eternal life. Eternal life is also used as an adjective to describe those who are actually utilizing the time. They're growing in grace and knowledge. They are using their spiritual assets to prepare for not just what's ahead next week or next month, but for eternity. These are the ones who fight the good fight of faith. Some people don't like to fight, and they don't like to argue. They don't like to have any kind of confrontation with anyone. But according to this, there's such a thing as fighting the good fight of faith. That's a good fight. That's one that you're required to engage in. Are you just going to sit by when somebody talks about maybe a presidential candidate that is a Mormon and claim that Mormons are just like Christians or that they are Christians and they will surely go to heaven? Are you going to stand by and let that just pass? Or are you going to get engaged? Are you going to fight the good fight of faith? I'm not talking about arguing with someone. I'm talking about making the case clear, backing up with Scripture. That's what we are required to do. That's why we are here. That's why we're going over these Scriptures because most of the Scriptures that we're going over are misinterpreted. They're misunderstood because the people have the wrong worldview. They have the wrong Meta narrative, just another fancy word for a worldview. In other words, they think that their works will somehow make them acceptable to God. And so we have to be engaged in these things. So here we have an exhortation. Right before that, we have a warning. My question to those who are in Reformed theology, the Calvinists if you must persevere in order, if, if, let me put it this way if every person who is truly elect, automatically perseveres. Why do we have warnings? And why do we have exhortations if that is automatic and spontaneous anyway? Well, fact of the matter, there would be no warnings, there would be no exhortations. I don't see how there could be any rewards if everyone would persevere to the end of their life, all true believers. And it's really absurd to think that perseverance is a requirement that can be attached to salvation and eternal life. Those who believe that one must persevere in good works and abstain from sin in order to maintain uh, eternal salvation 
Thank the warnings and appeals to believers are not to forfeit their salvation and exhortations delineating behavioral standards one must maintain in order to be saved. You understand what that is? Those who are, have the works-based mentality with regards to salvation would say the thing about this warning, the thing about this warning is the warning is you better fight the good fight or else you'll wander away and you will lose your salvation or it will be proof that you never had it. That's the way they take this warning. And the exhortation is you better walk the straight and narrow. You better persevere in good works to the end because if you don't, then it will mean that uh, <coughs> you essentially lost your salvation. Turn to John chapter 15. This is what we're going to spend the rest of the evening on. You're noticing that I'm starting in the Gospels with these verses. Some people think the Gospels are the easiest part of the New Testament, but they are not, and they're the most misunderstood. We're talking about persevering and John chapter 15 verses 1 through 6 certainly deal with persevering, only it's called abiding. John 15, 1 through 6. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So who is the vine? Jesus Christ, put it in there, J.C., of course, capitals. And my father is the wine dresser, that would be God the Father, is the husbandman. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Who is the me in verse 2? It's Jesus. Every branch in me, underline in me. What did we see in verse 1? Christ said he is the true vine. Now he's talking about the branches, the branches who are in him. Let me say something right now. I'm going to explain this a little further in, in a few minutes. This is not talking about being in Christ as per baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is before Christ even went to the cross. The baptism of the Holy Spirit had not even taken place yet. So when you see this, in me, meaning in Christ, don't correlate it to what we know as being in Christ, which is so important, which the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which occurs at the moment of salvation, put us all in Christ, but that is not what this is talking about. <clears throat> so the branches are attached to the vine. And we're going to see as this plays out that if, if a branch is not attached to the vine... Can it produce fruit? No. The branches here is talking about believers. Believers that are connected to Jesus Christ as if he was the vine. He is the source of the fruit. Now what else do we see out of verse 2? The, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. What does that tell us? It tells us that there can be branches that are in Christ, in other words, they're connected to the vine, and they do not produce fruit. That's not hard to understand, is it? And that's, as we're going to see, especially when we get to verse 6, there are going to be those who allege that not all the branches are believers, and that if you are a true believer, then you will be producing fruit. And I don't know how they do that, because verse 2 says, Every branch in me... That does not bear fruit, which means there are branches in him that do not bear fruit. 
So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We're going to correlate this in a moment to verse 6. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Any of you ever grew, grow any fruit trees? What did you, huh? Yeah, try it. This is not a good time of the century <laughs> to be growing fruit trees. But if you have, you'll notice that you have to prune them. The more you prune them, the better they do. And there are some branches that just will not produce. And what do you do with those? You cut them off, right? So he's going to be showing an agricultural example as to what he's trying to explain with regard to us bearing fruit. Now, I don't think I need to explain to this group that bearing fruit is not getting out and hustling and impressing God by all your deeds. Bearing fruit is knowing Scripture, applying Scripture under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Who is he talking to? The branches, right? He's talking about the branches. And they are already clean. What does he mean, clean? Why are they clean? Because of the word, and here the word would be, guess what? Gospel. The gospel. Which I have spoken to you, and the spoken is a perfect active indicative. Perfect active indicative. So what he's essentially saying is, in one sense, you have already been clean, branches. Because when they believed in the gospel, what does that do to anybody's sin? They're completely cleansed at that point. So he's talking to the branches and he says, you are already clean because of the gospel that I have spoken to you. And that's speaking the gospel to them in the perfect tense. That's a perfect active indicative means that it has ongoing eternal repercussions. So again, I'm making the case that the branches are believers. And we've already seen in verse 2 that branches cannot, they, they are able not to bear fruit. In other words, you don't distinguish where something is a branch or not by whether it's producing fruit or not. You've got to use some other criteria because some do and some don't. And they've already been cleansed because of the word, the gospel, which I, Christ, had spoken to them in the perfect tense means it goes on and on. The repercussions, the, the blessings that come from that. <clears throat> Verse 4, Abide in me. That abide is, a, is a, an imperative mood. He is commanding them to abide in Him. And again, I go back to the Reformed theology. Why would you need a command to abide in Him, produce fruit, if you were going to do that anyway? In fact, you had to do it or else you weren't really saved. It wouldn't make sense, would it? Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine... So neither can you unless you abide in me. So abiding, what is it talking about when it says abiding in the vine? Now, if we were explaining that as it would relate to us today, it would mean abiding in him is to continue to use 1 John 1, 9, make sure that we keep the decks clean from uh, any mental attitude sins or any other kind of sin. It would mean that we have positive volition, that we're growing in the Word, we're learning doctrine, we're applying doctrine, all that under the filling of the Holy Spirit would, what it would to us mean abiding in the vine. They didn't have the same relationship with Christ that we do now after the cross. 
Abiding in the vine is abiding in Christ. And what that essentially means is that they were to be depending on Christ and being obedient to Christ. That's how they were to abide in the vine. I said depending on Christ and being obedient to Christ. And if they were not doing that, they cannot bear fruit. No branch can bear fruit of itself unless it's abiding in the vine. So neither can you. See, he's talking, he, Christ is making an agricultural example. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Impossible. If you take a, vine, a, a branch off of a vine and set it aside, how much fruit is going to Nothing. So if we go outside the parameters that God has set in order to do what is pleasing to Him, in order to do what is good, we are going to be fruitless. Now we might impress some other people with the things that we do, but we do not impress God. It's, it, all it is is human good, and it, we will see that would I, I guess a good analogy that would be dead fruit. I have I had a peach tree one time that I, was kind of like that. It produced a lot of fruit, but it was I couldn't eat it. It had worms in it. It wasn't the tree's fault. I guess it was the worms, but to see it still, uh, the, the branches were producing fruit, but it was dead. That would be like us trying to go out and do great things for God either being ignorant of or ignoring the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit enabling us to produce fruit. If you all have any questions, sing out. Now I have some citations here <coughs> from various theological journals that will help explain some of this as we go. <coughs> Let's see where this one's from. This one's from... Uh, Bibliotheca Sacra, Volume 91. Uh, this was written in 1934, a while back. Quote, It is evident from the very command of Christ, Abide in me, that this is a, condi uh, a conditional feature and not a part of the Christian position in grace. You know what he means by the Christian position in grace? He's talking about Grace being faith alone in Christ alone. This is not salvific. This argument has been advanced by those who believe a Christian can be saved and then lost, which we know better than that, right? Heresy. The source of the trouble lies in a too literal interpretation of this figure which Christ is using. The obvious purpose of the figure of the vine is to make clear the secret of fruitfulness. The subject of salvation is not being dealt with at all. If you want to make a little notation right there in James 15, I mean, excuse me, John 15, just salvation, just like it is in James. Remember James 2, 14 through 26, salvation is not the issue. I think it's kind of a, on an oblique way mentioned one time, but it's, it's, it's not the issue, not, nor is it here. Christ is talking to Christians. Judas Iscariot was not in the company when the words were spoken. So when he says, you are branches, he was not referring to Judas because he wasn't there. Christ was clearly speaking of a conditional element in the lives of Christians. Abiding is not the condition of being a branch, but it is a condition of a branch. Do you understand that? Abiding is not the way that you determine whether a branch is a branch. But abiding will tell you the condition of the branch. Let me put that in clearer terms. You can look at another Christian and look at their behavior and you cannot tell if that person is a, a believer or not by their behavior. But you can tell the condition of that branch. You can say, you can come to this determination. If that's a branch, it's in a sorry state. 
It's not producing any fruit. And it's really in a place of danger. Now, this is not to encourage you to go around and start judging everybody by their behavior. We can't do that, especially when it comes to whether they're saved or not. So again, abiding is not a condition of being a branch. There are most, let me tell you, most branches are not abiding. If you want to look at their behavior, if you follow them around with a clipboard, pretty soon you would say, this is not a branch. Look what, look what they're doing. Or look what they're not doing. But it will tell you the condition of the branch. Verse 5, looks somewhat innocuous. Not so. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You've heard me quote that before. Outside of Christ, you can do absolutely zilp, zero, nada with regards to appeasing God, being accepted by God, or anything else. God is not interested in what you do. God is interested in what He can do through you. Now this is something... Well, I'll get to this in a minute. Remember I said this is not talking about being in Christ. I expand on it a little more here. Christ said this before he went to the cross, and abiding in me is not the same as being positionally in Christ. That relates only to church age believers, and this was said before the church age. Abiding in Christ refers to being in fellowship with Christ, being dependent upon him, and being obedient to him. I gave you that already. That's what it meant to abiding in Christ. This verse does not say that we are to do nothing or that it takes no effort on our part to bear fruit. The reason I'm bringing this up, I got an email, not, I think it was a week ago, that recent. And here's an example. In the email, John 15.5 was the verse. It was the only verse given. And then the person made some commentary underneath it, and I'm going to give it to you right here. And you can see how someone would look at this verse and come away with the wrong idea. Here's what was in the email. Quote, The branch does not make any effort or stress or strive to bear the fruit. Fruit bearing is as, as an effortless, natural, and spontaneous process. Let's not beat ourselves to perform to live a fulfilled life. Let's remain in Christ. The key to the Christian living is summarized in this one verse, the more one seeks God, the more one gets the clarity and essence of our Christian life. I agree with that last sentence. But there has been some misunderstanding about what it takes to appear, abide in me. We're not talking about, again, we're not talking about being in Christ. We're talking about back then. This person has said that uh, it doesn't take any effort or any strive, stress or any strive, uh, you don't strive to bear fruit. It's effortless, natural, and spontaneous. And I, and I do not agree with that, and I'm going to show you why. We're not saying that our works are meritorious. What we're saying is that work is, guess what? Work. It takes effort. It takes sometimes even striving. If you'll hold your questions for just a minute, let me get through this a, a few more points. Then you can start firing away if you'd like. Fruit producing is not automatic or spontaneous. It takes positive volition and effort on the part of the believer. Let's not mince words here. When it says that uh, Christ said we must uh, bear our own cross. We're going to see where Paul talks about labor, labor and striving. We can say that it takes effort on our part because we're not relating it to eternal salvation at all. And this is where so many people miss the point. After salvation, yeah, there is effort. There is work. There is striving. And that's what rewards are for. 
if you do enter and engage in that kind of work, then there are rewards. If you do not, you're still a believer. You're still a branch, but you're not going to get any rewards. I get uh, communiques from the missionaries all the time. And I'm amazed at the effort and the work they put out. I mean, they, they, when they travel 50 miles to another place, it is an ordeal. We think about getting on a super highway like 290 out here and breezing in our cruise control, air-conditioned. They might get on a hot, smelly bus with roads that you wouldn't go down even in a Jeep and all of the stench and squalor and smells and, and they might break down. If it rains, it's just a horrible thing. This is part of striving. This is part of effort. This is part of labor. So to say that uh, all you need to do is be in Christ and be part of the branch, and you don't have to do anything. That's the thing. It's like, what did he say again? Spontaneous. It's, it, the branch does not make any effort or stress or strive to bear fruit. The fruit, uh, to bear the fruit, fruit bearing is an effortless, natural, and spontaneous process. And I'm saying, I'm, what I'm doing is showing you that's not the case. Fruit producing is not automatic, not spontaneous. Paul described the effort and work it takes to produce fruit, but how it can only be done through the power of God who works within us. Look at, Col well, you can either turn there or look at it here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 through 29. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Isn't that a wonderful way of saying it? I don't see anything spontaneous there. I don't see anything that's effortless there. I see commitment and drive and toil and labor. But here's the thing. We have to, the only way we can do that, the way Jesus said before the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is the only way we can do that is to abide in Him. The only way we can do it tonight, today is if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or that there's no effort put forth. Anybody that's done any work for the Lord, legitimate kind, that is divine good, knows that. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You got that? Just because we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, just because we have God that is enabling us, motivating us, and really accomplishing everything that needs to be done doesn't mean that we don't have to put forth effort. You had to put forth effort just to get here. Those who put forth effort to produce fruit but are not filled with the Holy Spirit produce what the Bible calls dead works. So you can strive. If you're not in, in speaking to them, if they were not abiding in Christ, all they would be producing is dead fruit. And with us, anybody that strives and is out there hustling for God but they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, then the Bible says what they're producing is dead works. It would be like a branch who is producing dead fruit. What good is that? It's no good for anything. So the, that kind, the Bible calls dead works which are not acceptable to God, and that's given in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Dead works. I was debating with a Calvinist one time. And I said that no one goes to their uh, goes to hell for their sins, 
That means that Christ had to pay for their sins because if Christ didn't pay for their sins, then they'd be judged according to their sins. Right? Right. But they're not judged according to their sins. And where do you find that? What did we look at a while ago? Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne. Twice in two verses, 13 and 14, it says that we are uh, unbelievers are going to be judged according to their works. And you know what he told me? He said, oh, those are, those are bad works. I said, bad? I don't see bad there. Do you all want to turn there and look at it? Or are you all good to go? You're good to go. Okay. It doesn't say that they're being judged by their bad works. I said, I don't know of any place in the Bible that talks about bad works. I know it talks about dead works. That's what they are right here. And dead works are things that people do that are good, that they want to get credit for, but it's not done in the filling of the Holy Spirit, and it's called dead works. It's like a branch that produces dead fruit. Is that going to impress anybody? No. I'm going to slow down and go back up here because some of you look like you're trying to strain a little bit. Do you understand what I'm talking about with regard to effort in producing divine good? Just because the Holy Spirit is involved, even though He is the one motivating us, He is leading us, He's the one that makes all the changes and does everything, but we have to be out there on the front line willing to be used. And that takes effort. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, I think that takes effort to get there, don't you? I mean, winding up in the belly of some sea creature is all the is a lot of effort. I, yeah, it sure did. <laughs> uh, here's the thing: what the person that wrote this doesn't understand. He says, where is it? Oh, here it is. Um, Let's remain in Christ. I'm not sure what he means by that. But let me tell you something. If he meant, let's let these branches remain connected to the vine where the source of energy and everything is coming from. I understand that. But when you are connected to the vine and all the source that's coming out, I think it takes energy to come from a little bitty spot of a bloom and wind up being a big grapefruit. Energy has to be expelled even in the plant world. And it certainly does in the human well world when it comes to producing fruit, divine good. We, have to, we can't shy away from that. And it is not spontaneous and it is not automatic. If it was, there'd be fruit growing everywhere. So many believers would, man, they'd have these wonderful fruit crops. And it looks, it looks like it's about as barren as my garden right now because they're not producing it. There's no effort putting, put forth. Are y'all good to move on now? By the way, James 2, 14 through 26, which you should be very familiar with, the problem of believers who put forth no effort to produce good works and therefore produce no fruit. Remember that? That's what James chapter 2 is all about. It was about the problem were believers who put forth no effort to produce fruit. Remember that? What did they say when the naked and the hungry came up to them? Oh, well, go and be fed and go and be, be filled and be clothed. Well, that's not, doing, that's not producing any, any fruit. Get in the kitchen. Let's get some grits going, some fried chicken, something. That takes some elbow grease. Let's do it. And if you thought now, it, it, it gets even harder with verse 6. But I'm going to make sure y'all are, are good with verse 5 before I go to verse 6. Here's the one that is the, the, the biggie for the most part. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up 
and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you don't abide in Him. If you're a branch and you don't abide in Him, what are you not going to produce? Fruit. What did verse 2 say? Those branches who do not produce fruit. If they don't produce fruit, they're not abiding in the vine, right? And who were they? Oh, by the way, do you know who Christ was talking to? His disciples. He was talking to his disciples. He was talking to believers. All right. Again, I'll read the verse. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch. Remember we heard that thrown away in verse 2? Is a believer thrown away into hell if he doesn't produce the fruit? And he dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So, if one does not abide in Christ, does it mean that he or she was never really a believer to begin with? Those who say that you have to persevere to the end, if you're truly elect, would have to say yes. And what did we say when someone tells you that yes, you have to persevere if you're truly a believer? When what do you say? Yeah. What do you mean by that? How long? How long does he have to persevere? And what does persevering mean anyway? Ask them. I'm not, gonna, I'm not sure what persevering means. Does it mean that if you hit your finger with a hammer and you say, oh, hell, or all damn, or something like that, oh, you quit persevering, Psh, you better start trembling, you better watch out. Do I have to commit murder, rape, fornication? Would that show that I'm... What's the guideline here? Where is it? Y'all remember that? You are so full of questions when someone tells you that you're... If you know that it's not biblical, you want to start asking questions. And if you're not sure, what should you do? Ask questions. Here's another quote. MacArthur says, The healthy, fruit-bearing branches represent genuine Christians. He argues, quote, We are not saved by works, but works are the only proof that faith is genuine, vibrant, and alive. And he goes to James 2.17 to prove it. Fruit is the only possible validation that a branch is abiding in the true vine. Really? I thought if the Bible says a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has eternal life, that's enough proof for me. Thus, the absence of fruit demonstrates the absence of life. And since abiding is necessary for, for, faith, uh, for fruitfulness, one who does not abide is one who is not saved. Now, this, this person has a lot bigger megaphone than I do. He goes out all over the country, all over the world, and this is his message. And I'm not trying to condemn him. I'm trying to rightly divide the word of truth and make sure that you have it as well. According to Schaefer, abiding in John 15, 1 through 6 refers to communion and not union because the passages focus on the believer's walk. Good for Schaefer. Further, he sees the action on the branches in verse 6, the one we just had, as an issue of communion, not union. A believer's failure to abide and thus to bear fruit leads to discipline from God which may include physical death. Dillo, this is Joseph Dillo. You may have heard me quote him before. He's the author of Reign of the Servant Kings, one of the best books that you can get. Is that right, Andrea? Did you get, the, did you get through it yet? <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a great book. I had one pastor tell me one time, he says, if you don't, outside the Bible, any other book that you read this year better be Joseph Dillo's Reign of the Servant Kings because it will knock your socks off. And it did. Anyway, that's Joseph Dillow. He says, Dillow concurs with Schaefer, adding that believers experience not only divine discipline in his life, but also loss of reward at the judgment of Christ. 
Believers experience not only divine discipline in this life, but also loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what they say it is, and I concur with them. Uh, This is by uh, a book from Dillo. Abiding is remaining in fellowship. Another look at John 15, 1 through 6, page 53. This is what Dillo says. (coughs) Excuse me. Dillo does not see a soteriological focus in verse 6. I don't need to explain soteriological, do I? Okay. Instead, the point of the figure of the vine and the branches is not to portray organic connection, but enablement and fellowship. This casting out, then, is not from salvation, but from fellowship. He rejects the idea that unfruitful branches cannot be either regenerate are abiding. I'll read that again. He rejects the idea that unfruitful branches cannot be either regenerate or abiding. He's saying, essentially, he rejects the idea if you are an unfruitful branch that you are not a believer. If you are a person that is not producing fruit, you are not fulfilling your mission as a a believer in Jesus Christ, he rejects the idea that that means they're not really saved. He asks, quote, If the fruitless branches are only professing Christians, then what bearing did the passage have on the disciples? He's talking to the disciples. Why in the middle of him explaining all this to the disciples would he start talking about something that has to do with unbelievers it wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't mix. See, here's the thing. This is right before Christ was going to go to the upper room discourse. He was very shortly going to be crucified, buried, and rise again. And he was ex- trying to explain to his disciples, even when he is gone, they still need to abide in him. Because when he left, they would feel abandoned. They would feel hopeless. He says, no, you're still a branch. You're still connected to me, and you have to depend on me. Don't try to go out and start crusading. Continue to depend upon me and be obedient to me, stay connected to me, and then you can produce the fruit. Verse 2 clearly says that a branch can be in Christ. He says in me, but he's talking about in Christ, and not produce fruit. How can one be a branch attached to Christ and then become detached without ever having been regenerate or without losing salvation? In other words, we know that you can't lose your salvation and the branch are connected to Christ, whether you produce fruit or not. Okay, it's... it's, uh, this will be our last quote of the night right here, but I want to get it because it has to do with what we've been looking at. Last, last quote of the night right here. And this comes from uh, Journal of J-O-T-G-E-S, Journal of Theology, and you can guess the rest, I guess. <laughs> As part of his final discourse, Jesus' words in John 15, 1 through 5 are addressed to his believing disciples. Jesus, uh, Judas had recently departed from their company with the intention of betraying him, something the others would learn very soon. Jesus was discussing his relationship to them as their source of life and as one whose ministry would be continued through the Holy Spirit after their departure. Because the disciples responded with worry and sorrow, Jesus was reassuring and comforting them. In the light of his departure and the promised ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus introduced the vine and the branches analogy to reveal to them the importance of their continued dependence on him. You got that? That is the context. And again, to try to allege that this verse 6, is talking about a branch that does not abide in the vine. We're saying a, a believer, if he doesn't uh, doesn't abide in the vine, 
either loses his salvation and is tossed into hell, or else the other side of the coin is they just thought they were a believer, they never were a believer, and they're still going to be yanked off and burned and tossed into the lake of fire. And I'm saying that is not according to the context, it is not according to grace, and it is is contrary, but you would be surprised. I just quoted you one leader here. There are several that would allege that if you don't abide, then you could be very well tossed into the lake of fire. And I'm saying not so. And we'll continue this next time. Is there any, what, yes? Abiding in, in, in Christ is, yeah, it's only the, bo- the bottom circle doesn't apply as well in Matthew before the cross, before Christ had, before Pentecost had taken place. But in our minds, if it helps you, that's, that's what it's talking about. Abiding in Christ is staying in the bottom circle, filled with the Holy Spirit and able to do the things that God has commanded us to do. What? You're talking about back then? I'm not going to answer that. It takes too long. I'll answer it at home. How about that? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. No. Uh, oh, you're talking about the they... You talking about the they that gather or they that are burned? Which they are you talking about? Huh? The last one. Okay, they that burned. Yeah, the they there would be the branches that did not abide, would be tossed into the fire and burned. See up there, if anyone talking about branches in context does not abide in me. Yeah, well, according to this, see, I, ha- I can't, oh, just at 8 o'clock. Um, right. That's what they are, but that's not the way people, see, when you see that they're, they gathered up and cast them into the lake, uh, into, and they are burned, people say, aha, see, these, these branches that didn't abide, they weren't truly believers and they're going to hell. Or else some will say, see, you've got to maintain and persevere in good works or you'll lose your salvation and you're going to hell. They keep putting all this. And what did I say? None of this has anything to do with salvation, eternal salvation. Once you understand that, then, then the rest of it starts to fall into place. Yes? It's the first day just talking about in the agricultural world, the branches that have been cut off and tossed on the ground or whatever, then they would gather them up. Whoever was doing the harvesting or the pruning or whatever, they would gather them up and they would put them in a, in a, uh, in a place and burn them. Okay? Yeah, in fact, you know what um, Dillo said, and I wasn't going to put it here, but since you brought it up, he says that it's a metonymy with regards to the branches and what is being burned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In other words, y'all are the wood, hay, and stubble that is burned. He says that the branches are a metonymy. A metonymy is using a word in place of another word. Uh, for, uh, for instance, if you said... Uh, all the uh, carriages are going to be taken to the crown. Well, the crown is talking about uh, royalty, you know, maybe to the palace or something. It didn't say the palace. It used a different word for palace. They used crown. That's a metonymy. And he said that the branches are actually a metonymy for the uh, wood, hay, and stubble that's going to be uh, burned at the judgment seat of Christ. Right, right, and he's he's going to, and it's the same thing that's going to happen here. This isn't going to be pleasant, but he's not destroyed. I mean, this that's why he said you can only take this so far. This deal. I, I'm I'm sorry I went a little over, but I hate to 
leave uh, questions still uh, hanging. If you have any more, write them down, and I'll get to them next time, okay? Let's close. Father, thank you for this time that we can fellowship in the Word and rightly divide it. We're so thankful that nothing depends upon us with regards to securing our eternal life apart from faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, we pray that you will help us to rightly divide these words, these verses, so that we can recognize that there is much that is expected of us after we have believed in Jesus Christ and that will motivate us to uh, continue on, not just because we're afraid that we're going to be thrown into a fire, but because we want to be good and faithful servants and we want to reach for the prize of the high calling of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the great rewards, decorations, and crowns that await those faithful ones. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.